I didn't know what I wanted. I would turn to other people and even my moral framework that I had was always changing on whatever the latest book I read was or whatever the latest podcast I listened to was or whoever I'd just spoken with in conversation. And so I was basically a chameleon and very susceptible to recency and sort of power. Like if I can was recently around somebody very powerful or somebody who was very manipulative, then I would just change. And now on the far side of being a believer, there's an iron truth, a moral code, a way of being that I'm called to be. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes. Today's guest is David Perel. David is a writer, a teacher, and a podcaster. David seeks to help as many people publish their writing online as possible. More than 1,500 people from over 70 countries have participated in David's Rite of Passage programs. Today on the show, we discuss what holds people back from being able to authentically express themselves, the true meaning of friendship, how to get realigned with your true self, how David went from atheist to believer, why it helps to have others believe in you, why you don't need to share your opinion on everything online, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome David Perel to the Adversity Advantage podcast. David Perel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Doug. You got it. I'd love to jump right in and ask you, what do you think holds people back from being able to authentically express themselves? Yeah, I think that the, in any moment, you're, this is really re- reductionist, but I think it's a helpful frame that in any moment, you're either operating from a place of fear or a place of love. And so my one word answer would be fear. And I can dive into that. I think that there's a fear of judgment on the outside. What are, I teach writing. So what are people going to think of me? Are people going to judge me? And there's also a fear of not being good at something. This is particularly true for more successful people that I work with. So people who are entrepreneurs, they run companies where they've been really successful in a certain place. And then all of a sudden they sit down to write and they're like, ah, I'm not, I'm not good at this. And there's a fear that comes with not being good at something. I mean, I felt that with, when I try to pick up a musical instrument, when I've tried to learn to dance, I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm not good at this. I'm used to being good at things. And now I'm not good at something. And there's a fear that comes from that. People get very secure and comfortable in being good at things. And then also there's often just an internal fear and there's a fear of seeing things about yourself and revealing things, having things be revealed to you that you didn't know about yourself. And I think that there's a fear there too. And all those things get us away from flow. They get us away from true creativity. And there's a great bit from Jerry Seinfeld where he's talking about his writing process. And he basically says that there's two phases. There is actually what I would call the love phase, which is you treat yourself like a baby and you're like, whatever it is that you want to do, go for it. And you're writing some kind of diary entry. You're just sharing without any regard for how that thing is going to be perceived. And then later on, 
you treat yourself like a military sergeant where you're saying, is this right? How will this be critiqued? And these are very separate modes of the creative process. And if you bring the military sergeant in too early, you neuter your own creativity. And being disconnected from self is something that gets a lot of people into trouble because you end up living this life that is so misaligned with who you truly are at your core. And that that leads to mental health issues, that leads to lack of purpose, lack of meaning, lack of fulfillment. Has there ever been a time, like in the last few years, where you felt disconnected from your true self? And if so, how did that play out in your writing? So I'm a Enneagram 3, and I'm really interested in the Enneagram. I work with an Enneagram coach very closely. His name is Rasna Das. And we've spent a lot of time working on this. And basically, the risk with the Enneagram is that you are so lusting for approval and external validation that you actually lose touch with the desirings of your heart. And actually, I would say that this is the norm, not the exception. I think the vast majority of people are very out of sync with what they really want to be doing, who they really are, what they really stand for in their careers and their lives. And that's one of the sad tragedies of the modern world. In my own case, I didn't even realize that I had these Enneagram style patterns and I was so shaped and dare I say ruled by the perception of outsiders that I didn't actually know what it was that I wanted, what it was that I stood for. And I always need to be doing work now to get back in touch with what that thing is. So I have a dear friend and he texted me one day and we were going back and forth and he said, you know what your problem always is? And I was like, what? And he goes, whenever you have a problem, you know what the truth is, you know exactly what to say, but you're afraid to say it because you're worried about how that's going to make other people feel about you. That's going to make them dislike you. And he's very right. That's basically 80% of my problems. So I've had to build in review systems and habits into my life to basically say, where is that happening? What is the conversation I need to have? Get better at telling the truth, stepping into conflict and letting just speaking truth into the world, but then learning how to speak truth in a way that has a tenderness and a grace about it and not like this sharp, you know, football coach, what the heck is wrong with you? Truth, because that doesn't help anybody. Like when you're getting ready to post something online, does that ever creep up on you? Like I'm just thinking about it in my own vision of how I would battle with something like that. And I have battled with something like that where I'm typing a tweet, something I want to express about myself or something I want to put out in the world as an opinion or whatever. And I'm like, shoot, if I send this, am I going to get negative comments? Am I going to get DMs? Am I going to lose half my followers? Is that what it looks like for you at times? Or is it something totally different? For this, this is more true in my personal interactions, but also I would say it was true for podcasts. I think that for many years, I was much more performative because I just wasn't comfortable and actually wasn't even in tune with what my heart wanted to say. It was like it was talking to me, but it just couldn't climb the 18 inches from my heart to my brain and through my mouth. Like it just couldn't do that, right? There was some sort of clot 
in that communication channel. And that's been a big change. I think that this really shows up in my personal interactions. And that's something that I've tried to change. As far as the public display and just sharing things in public, I mean, what I'm always just trying to do, and this is way easier said than done, is play to an audience of one. And I think that that's the gift that we have as believers is that we're really serving Christ and serving the Lord. And that really takes priority over naysayers and individual people. And the thing that I think people get wrong in culture that I really do take issue with is I think a lot of people go out and take a stand on something that they have no idea what they're talking about. You know, this next news wave, this next war, this next whatever shows up, crops up. Everyone's expected to have an opinion. You're supposed to read the news and all of a sudden be, you know, a PhD on Middle Eastern conflict one day and then Russia, Ukraine the next day. And then the next day, you know, like Chinese trade in American industrial policy. It's like, what? So then you're supposed to go out, have an opinion. You sort of anger these people. It's sort of this Rorschach test of half the people are on one side, half the people are on the other side. And I don't like that. I don't like that. I think that that is not a good place we've ended up with in as a society. And what I will say on the flip side is I have a few ideas that I strongly believe that I guess are fairly contrarian or counterintuitive or people might disagree with them. And I've thought through them and I have the willingness to back them up. And for certain ideas, a small number of ideas, I'll go out and I'll take a stand and I know it's true and my heart's in the right place. And when that's the case, I'm happy to deal with the blowback. But the ones that I regret are when I say something and I really didn't know what I was talking about. And now I've used my reach and I've used my platform to spread some sort of ignorance or something. I don't want that. Using your platform at times to talk about your relationship with Jesus can be scary at times, right? You haven't always believed in God. You haven't always had this relationship with Jesus. From what I understand, it's fairly recent in the last year or two, and it's became became a mechanism of survival for you out of darkness. Talk a bit about what your belief was like before that experience, and then what was going on in your life that kind of forced your hand into becoming a Christian. So I really didn't want to become a Christian. I actually wanted to, I basically set out to prove that Christians were stupid and that Christianity was dumb. And my plan was to do as much research as I could to basically own the Christians and say, you have no idea what you're talking about. And I had a friend, his name is Brent. He flew me up to Missouri and he's a very successful business guy. And I flew up to talk about business and making money and we ended up talking about Christianity and Jesus for four or five hours. And he said something at the end to the effect of, dude, I don't really know who you are. It was a fun, fun day hanging out with you. And it's fine if you want to reject Jesus, but you're going to have to have some better answers for that. I said, you're right. You're right. So I was living in New York at the time, flew back, and there was a guy there. His name's Tim Keller. He's a, a pastor, and he was very good before he died earlier this year at speaking to secular atheists who were in the achievement-oriented culture that I was in. And I would say that I was even religious about it. I would say that I definitely worshipped success and a kind of fame and 
the very worldly trappings that we get into. And that was my whole life. That that's that's what I was doing. And then eventually I began to see two things. The first is that Christianity is really the underpinning of Western civilization. I mean, how are you going to go to the Louvre if you haven't read the Bible? How are you going to read classic literature if you're not familiar with biblical stories? You're not going to be able to do it. So you should just, separate of what you believe, you should just know what the Bible says so that you can pick up on basic cultural things that underlie your life. Another example that really shook me was this, this line from the Declaration of Independence, it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So that word there, self-evident, well, that's actually, that's not self-evident at all. In the next line, it says, we are endowed by our creator, by our creator within alienable rights. So the creator, God, says that we're all made in his image, all have an intrinsic worth and value. And it's because of that, that that line from the Declaration of Independence stands there. So I'm like, hold on here. My moral framework is built on Christian ideas. And if you strip that out, I don't see an underpinning for what I believe. So I started scratching my head and saying, "Uh uh-oh, what's going on there? That was very intellectual. I then started looking at the Bible, really saying, hey, this is, you know, number one bestseller. No one's reading it. People talk about reading the Elon Musk biography, the Steve Jobs biography, the Einstein biography. Why is nobody talking about Jesus? And once again, this has nothing to do with whether you're a believer or not. Either Jesus was the son of God and, okay, that's crazy. We should probably learn about that. That's pretty interesting. But say he's not. Say that he's just a random guy. Well, time literally orbits around this guy's birth. It is 2024 because it has been 2024 years roughly since he was born. And that is the defining line in history for us Westerners. So if he's not the son of God, well, how did he do it? How did this guy by not by might, not by power, but by spirit, take down the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire the West had ever seen? If you're not a believer, what is going on? How did that happen? And people weren't talking about biographies of Jesus. And I was like, okay, that's a little strange. But that was all intellectual. So now I'll get into the shift. What happened was I began to develop an appreciation for Christianity, but I was like a fan, right? Like I could have had like a Jesus foam finger or something, right? It said like, go, you know, like go Christ, you know, could have walked around with that, you know, number one, woo. But what happened was, Earlier this year, I lost all sense of self. I went through a hard breakup with a woman I thought I was going to marry, had some things that were going really well in my business that stopped going well. I had to lay people off for the first time. And it was just one of those moments where I began to feel a sense of hopelessness and despair. And I swear that I only saw in black and white for five or six weeks. I struggled to get out of bed every morning, work, which I'd always had passion for, lost its meaning. People that I'd always cared about, they became robots and objects to me. I mean, it was as dark as you can get dark. 
And I was really struggling. And the way that I describe it, and this comes from my friend Chris Powers, he explains it really well. He said that there's a moment that you reach where you reach the end of yourself, where in order to solve problems in your life, you've always turned to certain places, certain books, certain ideas, and certain parts within yourself where you could be rescued. And I no longer had any tool in my toolkit that could rescue me. And that was my hopelessness. I think so often it's not a problem that stumps us, but the lack of a solution. And I had no solution. I had nowhere to turn. And I even got very minor grade suicidal. It was terrible. And... I didn't know what to do. I remember calling my sister and I said, hey, I've gone insane. I've gone insane. And the day after I woke up, March 19th, 2023, and something was different that morning. And I drove to church. I remember looking outside my apartment that morning and just feeling this sense of despair, loneliness of, oh my goodness, I have nothing. And I walked in, walked under the exit sign in our church as I was entering the worship center. And I feel like God put this like 10 to 15 pound cape, draped it over my back and sort of just said, I got you. And I had this like empty chest, this sort of empty feeling. And I felt this like rush of smoke that infused my body. And I think that that was the Holy Spirit. I don't know what it was. And I walked into church, not believing. I walked out 70 minutes later and I thought I was a believer and my life just hasn't been the same since. Thank you so much for sharing that, man. That's incredible. What a story. And it's really amazing to hear stories like that, where you're able to take some, some deep moments of pain in your life and turn it into a big sense of purpose. Right. And I'm interested to hear and learn, like, what has that done for you professionally. Like I understand it's really taken what you do and your mission for what you do to the next level. Talk about that. I don't think that I had the capacity for conviction before I was a believer. And basically the way that my brain worked was when you're an Enneagram three, a certain kind of person really resonates with this, but I think that when you don't have God, your entire life is some kind of public relations campaign. And what I mean by that is I would assign a point total to different people. And basically what I was trying to do is gain points in the eyes of others. So like my closest friends, they might have 10 points. People I work with, they might have seven points. Family, you know, might also be pretty high. Acquaintances would be a little lower. Strangers would be a little lower. And then basically... I ran this like crazy complex calculation in my brain based on what I'd done, how I treated people, how people were perceiving me. And then the total number of points that added up, that was basically how good of a person I was. And actually, like you see this in society, I would say a lot of philanthropy is people trying to earn points in the eyes of others so that they can be seen as a quote unquote good person. And they maybe feel guilty about something in their past and they try to gloss over it with philanthropy. And one of the 
things that makes me think that is how much of philanthropy is very uninteresting. It's not contrarian. It's just following the tried and true ways to do philanthropy because that's what society deems to be a good thing. And you don't see a lot of conviction, at least not as much as I would like to see in the world of philanthropy. All this to say, I didn't know what I wanted. I would turn to other people and even my moral framework that I had was always changing on whatever the latest book I read was or whatever the latest podcast I listened to was or whoever I'd just spoken with in conversation. And so I was basically a chameleon and very susceptible to recency and sort of power. Like if I can was recently around somebody very powerful or somebody who was very manipulative, then I would just change. And now on the far side of being a believer, there's an iron truth, a moral code, a way of being that I'm called to be, that I'm called to point myself towards, an unchanging compass that is more than 2,000 years old. And I can point myself to that. And truth is whatever is pointed towards what I read in scripture and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And falsity is whatever points away from it. And my conviction can then be rooted in my faith. And then I can be a servant, an ambassador, a messenger of God and orbit around that unchanging iron truth. And through that, I can have conviction. And to get to your question about business, in order to really do something profound in the world, you have to have conviction, right? Like this goes back to the famous Peter Thiel question. What very important truth do you believe that most people would disagree with you on? That question is about finding conviction. With the way that my brain worked, there was no room for conviction before I had God. Now, if it's pointing me towards the Lord, I'm happy to, to do difficult things, to have people dislike me, to have people get angry at me, to have people get angry at me and make difficult decisions in a way that I was nowhere close to being able to do two years ago. And sure, that serves me in business, but I think it only serves me in business because I have something so much higher up that I actually care about that I'm actually striving for. I know at the beginning of what you're doing now, you, you really got started because somebody believed in you and you didn't believe in yourself. How has you becoming a Christian in this, in this re recent spiritual awakening, transformation, call it whatever you want, how has that impacted your ability to believe in yourself? I think that what it's done is it's given me a lot of peace with what I am gifted at and what I'm not gifted at. And I'm quite a spiky person in terms of the narrowness of my surface area of what I'm actually talented at. And I don't feel basically any insecurities about that anymore now. Whereas I would say for the first 28 years of my life, I was haunted by all the things I wasn't good at. And I was constantly trying to compensate for that. And there's a word that I really love, surrender. And I've just surrendered to what I believe God has given me 
with my skills, with my talents, and I'm done fighting it. I spent decades fighting it. I think that when you're in the the depths of despair or you're looking to make some sort of transformation in your life, you don't have to necessarily be like at a low point when you're not confident in, in whatever that change is or your ability to do something, having somebody else to help instill belief in you is incredibly important and can be incredibly useful. And I know that was the case for you, but now I know you've like, you sought out like cultural tutor on Twitter and you're like, Hey, I really like what you're doing. I love your mission. Like here, I'm going to invest in you. Just here's what I want you to do. How has paying it forward and, and giving back like that? Like, what does that all meant to you? I just really enjoy it. You know, I don't see it as paying it forward, giving it back. I just love doing it. And I think I'm good at it. And I, I just have a good time doing it. I mean, I, you know, was able to find this guy who was literally working at McDonald's six weeks before I reached out to him. And he started writing on Twitter. And I was really impressed with his writing. I said, you know, I've scrolled around the world many times on Twitter in terms of all the miles that my index finger has moved or my thumbs have scrolled. And I said that there's something different about this person. There's a statue account, totally anonymous guy. And I said, I need to get in touch with him. And we started speaking. We get on the FaceTime and I say, who are you? And he's like, I'm this guy and my mid-20s, I'm living at home. I was working at McDonald's, like cleaning out the McFlurry machines and sweeping the the gum off the floors and all that. And I'm just trying to write, and I don't know if it's going to work out, but I'm training to be in the British military as my backup plan. And I'm like, what? What? Wait, so how do you make money? It's like, well, I don't really make money. I sort of work the graveyard shift in my old university and I was working at McDonald's and I was like, I think I made for more than McDonald's. And I said, hold on, I'll make you a deal. I will fund you to write. You can write about whatever you want. All you got to do is publish a Twitter thread every day and grow your email list because I believe that that's what's going to be best for you. But you can do whatever else you want. And I said, you got game. And it's been... A year and a half, he has 1.6 million Twitter followers. During that time, I think one of the fastest growing intellectual Twitter accounts in the world. And I love doing that. I want to do a few a year. I want to start incubating accounts. And sure, I mean, I think it is giving back. Maybe it's a form of service. And I do think it's a good thing to do with my time. But I don't think of it as a form of self-sacrifice. It's just a really good alignment of something that I enjoy, that I'm good at. And that I think makes the world a better place, but I get a kick out of it, man. That's amazing. That's that's awesome. That, the story of the cultural tutor is something that I'm, I'm quite inspired by. I love hearing stories of, I mean, I guess, I mean, he, adversity like that, where he turned, you know, something, you know, that was a challenge in his life and now is doing some amazing and meaningful work. And it's so cool to hear that you're a big part of that. You know, I'm, I'm interested just to close the loop on this, this point. Like you were somebody like we've I've touched on that you didn't believe in yourself. You had this guy come along and believe in you. You you believed in the cultural tutor. You do it with others. What do you think it is about somebody else believing in you and you don't believe in yourself that gets people going? Yeah. So I remember very vividly. It was December two thousand and seventeen. I think it was, and maybe twenty eighteen. And 
Yep, it was 2018. And what happened was Tyler Cowen, who's an economist at George Mason University, he had launched this Emergent Ventures program to basically fund young up-and-coming talent and be an inflection point for them. And I was in the second cohort, and he gave me some money. And I remember very, very vividly, I was about to go on a date, and I was standing outside on on Vanderbilt Avenue in Brooklyn. And uh, I see the emails, the girls, like 20 seconds away. It's like, hey, you've been awarded this grant. And I think that when you're trying to do big things, I always think of that line from Steve Jobs that I think is quite good, where he says everything in the world is made by somebody who's basically no smarter than you. And... You have to remember that. But that's just an idea. And then I think the next level, and I've had a few people in my life who have been like this, you just have somebody who's done it and you don't need a lot of people. It almost is like inversely correlated with the quantity of people and it really has to do with the quality of person. Somebody who says, I believe in you, but not just that. Somebody who raises your ambitions. And I don't think that there's a lot of free lunches in the world. I do think that raising your ambitions for yourself, especially early in your career, there's big returns from that. And I think it's as close of a thing as we have to a free lunch, so long as it comes from the right source. And I had that from Tyler Cowen. And I remember getting that message and it wasn't the money that really was the change. It was the money as a mechanism to say, I believe in you. And that belief carries so much more weight when there's a financial component to it. And that was one of the big changes that happened to me earlier in my career. I was like, oh my goodness, Tyler Cowen believes in me. This is crazy. And that was one of the things early on that gave me a lot of momentum. I know relationships are are very meaningful to you. I know if there was a certain person that called you right now, you'd leave and go fly to London if you had to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about the importance of your circle of friends and and why they've been so instrumental in your ability to deal with the ups and downs in life, to become a better human being, stuff like that. I have a few friends five friends who, five or six friends who I've looked at in the eye and said, you mean a lot to me and I would like to go all in on this relationship. And it is unpopular because I think that what then you have to do is you have to basically choose a certain kind of person. And you basically have to say, I'm going to make this choice and I'm going to explicitly talk to people in different ways. We do this with our family, but it's not something that we really do with our friends. And with these six guys, three of them live in New York. One lives in Costa Rica. One lives in Austin and another lives in Missouri. I'll just do anything for them. And it then ends up being vice versa. And Part of the reason I've chosen them is, frankly, I think that they're teaching me how to be a good friend. 
And then I try to be aware of some of the things that they do. You know, one of the big ones is just checking in. I had a tough day yesterday and had to deal with something hard. And I got a phone call from three of those guys. I spoke to another one on the phone yesterday, texted another one. You know, I spoke to five out of six of them and having them check in. And what ends up happening is that these guys see you in ways that you can't see yourself. And they can identify patterns that show up over the years. And they can say, they can predict where you're going to go. They can, they just know you well. And when you have a cadre of really good advisors around you like that, you just make far better decisions. You make far better decisions. And at some level, at the risk of sounding trite, the quality of your life really comes down to the decisions that you make and where you place your attention. That's sort of it. And those guys, I keep them on track. They keep me on track. And I think that if there's anything I've learned from one of them in particular, I was talking to a friend a few months ago and she said, you know, I was reading a study and when you give feedback to somebody, you want to balance positive and negative feedback. So you generally want a four to five to one ratio for positive feedback to negative feedback. And that way things stay fairly on the positive side. Don't give too much negative feedback. And I looked at her and I said, nope, don't think that's it. I think this exists on a totally separate axis. I believe that if somebody feels sufficiently loved by you, which I define as no matter what you do, no matter what you do, there's nothing that'll make them love you more and there's nothing that'll make them love you less. And it's just getting as close and close and close as you can to do that. The only place where I think that that really exists is with children, but you can get close. And I think that when you feel sufficiently loved by somebody, they can say anything to you. You can say anything to them. And that that just takes care of everything. And fundamentally, when people, when feedback goes goes poorly, it just comes down to not feeling loved, not feeling adequate, and not feeling seen. And I think that those guys, I feel an incredible sense of love from them. And I try to give the same thing to them. And because of that, it opens up levels of honesty. It's so true. I think that people a lot of times see friends as people to do stuff with. Like I'm going to go, you know, to a sporting event. We're going to go to dinner. We're going to go to happy hour. We're going to go to church. We're going to do all these things. Right. But I think where the transformation really happens is being able to have these deep, meaningful connections like you're referencing, where you're really able to be there for somebody and, and, and help support them in the best way possible. And I think, you know, one of the biggest questions I get and one of the most common questions I get is how do I find better friends? Like, Hey, I don't, I just am not happy with the people I'm spending time with. I feel like they're bringing me down all this stuff. I'm sure you've, you've heard as well. How do you, how do you begin to attract and find better friends into your life so that if somebody wants to have these types of friendships, like we were talking about, they can do so right online and then be a good friend, share your ideas in public and then be a good friend. This is why Rite of Passage, the company I started, centers around this idea that if you go out, you share your ideas, you end up finding people in your life 
who you'd never be able to meet in the physical world. And I've been doing it now for the better part of 10 years, and it just works where it's hard to find people who really share your passions, who share your interests at the level of intensity that you do in the physical world. It's, it's costly. And especially if you live in a rural place, it's hard. New York City's the only place I've lived where I've been able to really do this. San Francisco too. But go right on the internet, share ideas and have a thing at the bottom that says, hey, contact me. I'd love to hear from you. Hop on Zoom, talk to them on the phone. And if you can, go fly to go meet them or invite them to go meet you. That's the genesis of my work is exactly this question. How do you then attract those people? And then the second thing is Charlie Munger says, if you want to find a good mate, we'll be worthy of a good mate. If you want to find a good friend, we'll be worthy of a good friend. Go be a good friend. And I spent a lot of time thinking, what does it mean to really be a good friend? What does it mean to be there for people? And that's what I liked about reducing the circle down to a small number of people and then looking those guys in the eye and say, hey, you really mean everything to me and I'll just do crazy things for them. I'll, you know, they're giving a talk in New York for two hours. Great. Let's hop on an airplane and spend the weekend there. You know, I'll crash on their couch. You know what I mean? And I think that so much of what it means to set priorities is to reduce your surface area of values to something small enough where then within those things, you can go all out and be, dare I say, un reasonably committed to those things. And the hard part there is just knowing what you want in the first place, knowing what you actually value in the first place, knowing what you stand for in the first place. And that's really the work that needs to be done. You just talked about the importance of self-awareness, self-development as it relates to all of this. Curious, it's, we just crossed over 2024. What's a big... I know you're a big goal guy, right? What's a big goal of yours for this year when it comes to something you want to work on for yourself outside of becoming a better Christian, becoming closer uh, in your relationship with God with something you're working on? Yeah, I'll give a meta answer. I'm trying to figure it out. And what I'm doing is I'm doing a 360 review with two people who I work with, four friends, and both my parents. And the coach who I work with, Rasnath Das, is going to interview all of them. And we're basically then going to see what are the different patterns that I have and where's the opportunity for that growth. And then we'll come up with an answer for the year. So we're getting started with that now, but just trying to be really intentional about it and see what my blind spots are. And here's what's crucial. I'm trying to define my values, define what I want to stand for, define where I want to go. And I'm only trying to, I guess, change myself or mold myself in a different way insofar as it's incongruent, as things are incongruent. I'm really looking for alignment in my life where the way I talk to my friends, the way that I'm in public, the way that I do my work, the way that I think about my faith, all the way I interact with my family – all of it is congruent. That's the first half. 
then the second half is what are weaknesses or patterns that I have that are severely limiting me? Because I am conscious at the same time, I think that you can get too navel gazy and that a lot of the modern culture gets too deep into what I would call the work and sort of an obsession with therapy that we have now, which can go well or it can go very poorly. I've seen both. And I think a lot of it depends on the therapist. And just as with coaching, I think a lot of it depends on the actual coach. And then just being deliberate about, okay, what are the moves that I'm going to make? And what do I just need to be conscious and aware of? But I've been doing it for a year. And the level of clarity and that I feel in terms of where I'm going and just the level of peace that I feel on a day-to-day basis is so much higher than it used to be. Given that you are so personal growth, goal-driven, oriented, do you ever find yourself kind of getting in your own way because you're so focused on just continuing to get better in areas of your life? Or do you have you kind of found a way to, to harness that? I think the answer is yes. I think that it all comes back to worship and do you have a healthy relationship with things, right? That when it gets unhealthy, it means that I'm worshiping something. It means that I believe that my worth, my value my sanctification is going to come from something on this planet. You know, whether it's some people struggle with food, so it'll be that next meal. Some people struggle with women and they think that that next girl who I spend the night with, that'll be the thing. Some people struggle with money. Hey, once I hit the number, then I'll be good. Some people struggle with, hey, how many people people do I have working for me at my company, right? That's power. And work is pre-fall. We're called to work. We are called to tend God's garden and be custodians of this world that he's given us and to serve others. We're called to do those things. There's no doubt about it. When it becomes a problem is when the work becomes something that you get so obsessed with that you forget about what you're doing in the first place, or in my case, serving God or that you get so focused on your number of wealth that you're going to reach that you neglect people in your life and your whole life is just driven by dirty fuel. And sure, you can be successful doing that. There's no doubt. But in your wake, you have a lot of broken relationships. You have a lot of hurt people. Often you have a hurt environment for certain kinds of people like the planet and that's not cool. So it's not about more work or less work. It's about why are you working in the first place and towards what end and getting very clear on that. So for the person that's listening to this, that maybe they're not a Christian, they're listening to this and just saying, you know what, like it's, it's inspiring, David, what you've achieved in your transformation, your relationship. It's not my thing. And that's cool. I'm still feeling kind of stuck and lacking creativity, feeling disconnected from myself. What are some things maybe before becoming a Christian that helped you like reconnected yourself to some sense of alignment when you were getting, when you were trying to get something done, like what helped you like during those times? Yeah. I think one of the best things that anybody can do is make a list of things that they love and a list of things that they hate and be very honest about what those things are. And It's not a list of what society loves and what society hates. It's getting away from that. 
right? Like the classic example, so you go to an art museum. What painting do you love? It doesn't need to be the famous Van Gogh. It doesn't need to be the iconic Degas. What painting do you love? What section do you go to? What are the sections of that museum that also you just loathe? What, what do you look at and you say that that disgusts me? It offends me. And I think that it is bad that that thing exists. Go write that down. Go write it down. Do it with music. Do it with movies. What do you love and what do you hate? And I think so much of the struggle that we have right now with personal growth is it's so incurved on ourselves. It's like a mirror where we're always looking back at ourselves like narcissists. And what I like about this is you're learning to listen to yourself. You're learning to trust your own intuitions and you're looking outwards instead of inwards. So when I was living in New York, I would go to the, to the Met like every Thursday. And I would just go and I'd just walk around. And sometimes I'd be there for 20 minutes. Sometimes I'd be there for an hour. Sometimes I'd be there for three hours. In New York two weeks ago, I went two times. And I'll just go to museums and I'll do that. What do I love? What do I hate? And I spend a lot of time with the stuff that I really like. And what I'm trying to just do is surround myself with influences that inspire me, that lift me up. And to be inspired, basically, I think that what it means is to be injected. I mean, literally it's to be in spirit, spirit, ruach, ruach, the breath. And you are given breath, you are given life and surround yourself with things that give you that life. And when that happens, I think that then it is human nature to go be inspired, to create, to make things of your own. A lot of my audience deals with a lot of pain, a lot of adversity, or has dealt with a lot of pain, a lot of adversity, and then maybe some are going through something right now. A lot of people will also use things like journaling, writing as a way to process some of this stuff. I know writing is what you do professionally, but personally, is it something that helps you process like your feelings and emotions as well? Yeah. I mean, what I do, so I do a daily Bible study, and I guess this is sort of a journal too. So what I do is I read through the Bible in a year. So I read a section of the Old Testament, a section of the Psalms, a section of Proverbs, and a section of the New Testament. And based on that, I journal on what do I need to know? Who do I need to be? What do I need to do? And I miss some days, but I try to do it every day. If I miss a day, that's fine. But I'm pretty good about it. And that helps me process. I think that when you're reading a really good book, It's not as much as you read the book, but the book also reads you and the book reveals itself. Like the words twinkle, ideas will rise up out of the page and actually begin to speak to you in a really deep way. And I think in a surprising way, and that to me is what a great book is, is that it underpins and speaks to enough of the human condition that it can do this for many, many, many people. And that's what I try to do in my daily practice, and then just to be blunt and honest and see what gets revealed. I really like the word reveal, revelation, these things that surprise you. And increasingly, I'm taking more stake in this idea that creativity isn't so much brute force, but almost a pattern of listening and sensing and being a conduit 
for these outside forces, listening to those and then being a messenger for deliver, delivering that into the world. Because I've even had things that I've read and I've been like, how did I know to say that? Or moments when I've been speaking and I've thought the same thing. And in that moment of flow and alignment, I'm like, I did that, but that wasn't me that did that. It was something else. What are a few things that you found were revealed to you about yourself in 2023 last year that, that led to an immense amount of growth for you? I think that I've really honed in on the three things I want to be doing. And the first is I want to build domain expertise in online writing for smart, ambitious, and super successful people. That's number one. Number two is I want to be a world-class communicator, written and spoken. And the third is I want a large and loyal online audience to amplify the first two. And anything outside of that, I'm not super interested in doing for the most part. That is, that's my groove. Like I can play that game really well. I want to make it even more specific. And that has only been revealed to me in the last year through a bunch and a bunch and a bunch of clarity of really reflecting on what are the things that give me life? What are the things that don't? And now that I've orbited into those three things, it's very clear how I should be spending my days. And I think so much of productivity culture is about working harder and so little of it is about alignment and congruence. And there's this great quote from Oswath the Morden. He's a professor at NYU and he's known for his immense productivity and really how to value companies. He's amongst the world expert in that. And somebody once asked him, hey, Oswath, how have you been so productive? And he said, you know, it's funny. I have a bunch of kids. I don't work much more than 40 hours a week. It's just that my teaching feeds into my books and my books feed into my speaking and my speaking teaches in feeds into my counseling and my advisorship consulting with companies and everything feeds into each other. And I almost wonder if we do well to think of our life as a flywheel and thinking about how do we get that alignment and think about productivity less in terms of how hard can I work and more in terms of how aligned can I be. And then what you end up with is a graceful move through the world. That's sort of like how Stephen Curry plays basketball, where there's an immense effort that he's going through, but you can see that there's very little wasted movement. And I think that the mark of somebody who's an amateur or unclear is a lot of wasted movement. They somehow move a lot, but don't get very far. And I would rather do the opposite. I would move the right, want to move the right amount and travel a long way. A lot of people struggle to believe in something like God, Jesus, higher power, universe, whatever, whatever somebody wants to call it. Right. And I know, I don't know how else to say this, so forgive me if this comes, if this comes across in a negative way, but I know for you, you not wanting to believe is almost in a form of arrogance. Like you were like, I want to prove that I know more about Jesus or that my way is better. Right. And I know that that can be one reason that people, you know, don't believe it because they just can't wrap their head around how this, how this thing exists. Given that you've, you seem like you have a good, 
you've, you have your finger on the pulse for a lot of this stuff. You've talked to a lot of people. You've had your own experiences. Why do you think people don't believe in, in something greater than, than themselves? There's a lot of reasons, right? There's, I mean, one of the big ones that makes it hard is the problem of evil. Why is there so much suffering? Why is there so much pain? I think another one is, this is one that stumped me. Well, Christianity is interesting, but you know what I don't like? Christians. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like Christians. You know, there's a bunch of people who I know who are hypocritical and they say they believe one thing, they act another. I don't like that. Then also a lot of people say, hey, there's 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 not enough evidence. There's not enough evidence. I mean, if God really existed, wouldn't he show me? Wouldn't he reveal himself to me so much more? And I'd say a few things. The first thing is there's no position that you can take in terms of your spiritual metaphysics that doesn't require a leap of faith. And there's a great book that I encourage non-believers to read called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And I love the title. It's super self-explanatory where there's a bunch of faith rooted in an atheist perspective. And I had always thought that actually the null hypothesis had to be atheism, that that required no assumptions. It turns out there's actually a bunch of assumptions in any place. And it just so happens that people who do have faith, they take a leap of faith. They're just being honest about the delta between what they can reason their way to and what they actually know. Whereas when I was atheist, I wasn't being honest about that. I didn't realize how many assumptions were rooted in my worldview. So I think that those are the big things. But one of the big ones that helped me through that Christian hypocrisy point was I realized two things. I realized the first thing I realized was that there were way more Christians in the world than I ever thought. And what I mean by that is that if you go out and you talk to people about their morality and you ask them questions about what is it that you believe is right and what is it that you believe is wrong, and you trace the lineage of those beliefs, an astounding percentage of them will go back to Christianity and the story of Jesus, such as all people, all men are created equal in the Declaration of Independence. So way more Christians than I thought. And I said, whoa, this is important. And then I got stumped on this question of hypocrisy. What do I do? And what I realized is that there's a lot more people who label themselves as Christian than actually walk with Jesus every single day. And they're not perfect. They're not perfect. No human being is ever going to be. We are we have a sinful nature, but every day they are in earnest trying to mold themselves to be more like Jesus through this process of sanctification. They're in community with other believers. They're praying on a daily basis. They're opening up the Bible and actually reading scripture and really studying it and trying to apply it to their lives. And what I realized was in that sense, there are way fewer Christians than I ever thought. Maybe only 5 to 10% of the people who say they're Christian are actually like that. And so as I begin to judge the faith, I'm only going to look at that 5 to 10% of, of people and I'm going to say, what are the fruits of their life? What, how are they living? And what I saw is that they could love people in ways that I 
had never been loved or loved somebody in my life, that they could walk with a sense of hope and peace that I didn't have. And it was different, not in quantity, but in kind, that no matter how far I walked along the path that I'd been walking, I could have never gotten there. And once I got there, to go back to what we were talking about originally with the leap of faith, I feel now that is my Christianity a leap of faith? Yes. But out of all the different positions, it feels like the smallest leap to me that I can make. And therefore, I've rooted my life in it. I think that's an excellent place for us to end our convo. David, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for your vulnerability for sharing everything. I think the audience is going to get a lot of value out of this conversation. If they're not following you already, um, where's the best place to connect with you? Where can they learn more about the rite of passage? Where's the best place for people to go? Yeah, I think, hey, if you like this and you want to learn more about creating or you're interested in writing, I have a podcast of my own. It's called How I Write, How I Write. And I interview writers about their creative process. Mark Andreessen's been on, Tim Ferriss has been on, a bunch of writers. And then I also have my own site, perel.com, P-E-R-E-L-L.com. I'm really active on Twitter. And then, like you said, I teach people to write through a program called Rite of Passage. Amazing. Well, I'll be sure to include the links to that stuff in the show notes. So David, thank you so much for coming on. This was awesome. And like I said, the audience is going to get a lot of value out of this. Thanks, man. 